Hello, agents, and welcome back to Podcast 13. Woohoo! You guys, I was really sick and now I'm better. Woo! For the getting better, not the sickness. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thanks for that reaction. <laughs> and before we begin, I just want to offer a brief content warning. It is Mental Health Month, so we are all being aware of our mental health and encouraging you to do the same. Um, Whatever you're dealing with, there are ways to get help. There are things you can do. Therapy is amazing. SSRIs work. And uh, it's absolutely okay to talk to someone when you need to. And to talk freely with the people in your life who you care about. You shouldn't have to be ashamed at all. Yes. And so we will be talking about suicide and we want to make sure that that's not triggering for anyone. And in particular, there's something I want to say about our discussion of Sylvia Plath, because our artifact expert today is an expert in the way that women are unfairly remembered for their mental health issues, and oftentimes the way they died, especially if they died by suicide. So we are going to be discussing with our expert about how that's unfair, and we should not color our whole remembrance of someone based on the way that they died, but that does not mean that it's unimportant or that it's something we want to trivialize if a person dealt with something serious like depression and those very scary and dangerous you know, self-harm thoughts. So please be aware that even when we say, let's not forget how great of a writer Plath was, we are still remembering the, the tough things that she had to deal with in her life and acknowledging how tough they were. Well stated. Thank you. So this week we are discussing episode 110, Breakdown. And your summary for the week is... Artie files paperwork. Claudia does maintenance around the warehouse. And Pete and Micah finally get a day off. <laughs> Artie files paperwork. Full stop. <laughs> brilliantly delivered Thank you. um and yeah that is what happens yeah. <laughs> but boy does so much occur in between your <laughs> oh i love it thank you thank you i had fun writing that one oh and i forgot before we do our writer appreciation we also have to say a huge thank you shout out to a few supporters so our newest Patreons include Matthew Foxley, Mons Foster, Jenna Engel, and friend slash number one Twitter follower of our show, Aslam Chowdhury, increased his pledge. So we are shouting out to you again. Thank you so much for your tweets and your kind words and for continuing to support us. Thank you so much to all of you. We love you and we appreciate you so much. Woohoo! <laughs> okay, so this week's episode was written by Michael P. Fox and, no ampersand, Ian Stokes. <laughs> so let's start with Ian Stokes, because he's the tab I have open. His first writing credit ever was actually on Warehouse 13. He apparently got his start as executive story editor and story editor on Warehouse 13 and then moved up to staff writer and eventually to co-producer. So he went from baby writer status to mid-level writer status all on one show, which is 
really cool to see. Um, from there, he moved on to Teen Wolf and then worked on a bunch of the Netflix Marvel series. So Iron Fist and Luke Cage. And I'm excited to see what he has next because he seems to really be hitting his stride writing-wise, and that's awesome. Moving on to the other writer, Michael P. Fox. I just want to make a Back to the Future joke. Write your own joke here. (laughs) Our second writer, Michael P. Fox, had a very different journey writer-wise. His first writing credit appears to be on the TV show Little Bill, which I loved growing up. And from there, he moved on to a show called According to Jim. Then, in case of emergency, for one episode, and then to Warehouse 13, where he has two written by credits and was a staff writer for five episodes. He moved on to a show that I know nothing about that is called The Money in the Bank Show. And I said it that way because it has not one, not two, not three, but four E's in the interesting word to highlight in a title. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Then he moved on to a series called The First Family and then has apparently been writing on My Little Pony Friendship is Magic for the past several years. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, those are some great writers and uh, excited for this episode because it's a fun one. It's so fun. I would like to say just going in, it's it might be tied with Duped for my favorite episode of the first season. I, I just really love the world building. So we are at the start of the episode where Micah is working on some forms at the table and Pete is, I don't know, making fun of her for being slow? They're talking about the tortoise and the hare? Yes, she is filling out paperwork, and Pete is done, and (laughs) Micah is not done, and Artie comes to collect it. She's like, wait, wait, one minute, one minute. And that's where they talk about the tortoise and the hare, and he calls it a fairy tale. She goes, it's not a fairy tale, it's a fable. (laughs) I love that she grew up in a bookstore, because she's right, and she perfectly explains that. You don't need me to explain it because she does a great job. Exactly. And I also love that it's not just throwaway background they gave to her. It's like actually for real influencing her character, which is something I love about this show. And this is what I was talking about earlier with the world building. I think it's really, this is an episode that really showcases how much thought they put into characters and character development, which is as a a writer and the kind of writer that I am, that's the stuff I care most about watching. So I missed, but now you've made it clear to me, was Pete also filling out paperwork and he finished first? Oh yeah. Oh, of course he did. And and you know in his like bad like man handwriting too, like he, he's just like and he's done. And Micah's taking her time and being thorough because that's who Micah is. But also like as someone who really identifies with Micah, she might have been putting in too much detail and been like, maybe they need to know this. And like I say that as a fully self-aware person who definitely does that. yes and that's when Micah actually asks about the paperwork because she's like you know it's not for Artie it's not for Mrs. Frederick who are these even for and Artie explains that they answered to someone far above their own pay grade and also that they have to have these forms delivered through a courier and then when (laughs) Pete finds out he laughs and is like, what, is it the Wells Fargo wagon? Which is great and a Music Man reference that I shall put in the show notes for all y'all. 
Oh my gosh, I that's funny because I was just like, wow, great to know you're 19th century, Pete, but like, I didn't know it was a reference. But it's it's funny, we laugh regardless of if we get the reference yeah. or not, which is very effective pop culture writing. And it's another example of them remembering what they say about Pete. Oh, that he likes musicals? Yes! <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you because I wanted to shriek. It's okay. So there's your pop culture reference. That's amazing. And that leads Artie to rush out the door to deliver the paperwork. And he says, Claudia is doing chores. Micah wants to know where. And that would be in the warehouse. And Artie tells Pete and Micah to enjoy their day off. Oh, famous <laughs> last words. <laughs> so they begin to enjoy their day off because we are going to learn later that they got donuts. But that's the end of the enjoyment because we cut to Claudia and she's pretending to be a TV doctor, which is hilarious and adorable. I loved it. She's working on, um, they call it the auto vac later, but it looks like a kind of old school vacuum that she's doing some stuff with. She's making it become a Roomba, but less compact. <laughs> <laughs> a tall and uh, dangerous Roomba. Yeah. And she finishes, and I didn't look this up, but I have to ask Jillian, she goes, Gonza, does that mean anything? I think she just made a sound and was like, that's the sound I'm making. Um, what yeah. I noticed about that scene is that while she's pretending to be a TV doctor, she goes, nurse, I need some suction, which is a funny enough joke on its own. But then when you pull back and realize it's a vacuum cleaner, you're like, ha ha, suction. Oh, that is a good joke. I love it. So she finishes what she's doing and goes to take a sip of Coca-Cola and it seems to not be cold enough because she's like, oh no. And then she decides that she's going to use an artifact, which is funny because we know she has been, what's the word, wronged by artifacts before. But she takes a little snow globe and shakes it on her Coke and that makes it into frosty goodness. I, and I wrote, well, Claudia, you literally just got in trouble for Volta's lab coat. I know! That's what I was thinking. I was like, it has not been that long since you used an artifact to your own, you know, advantage. But it seems that with this snow globe, she has used it before. Like, she has it in her tool bag. So it's not like the spur-of-the-moment decision with the lab coat that ended badly. Yeah. And, and it does come back later in one of the Christmas episodes, too, so... Oh, nice. I forgot. <laughs> and uh, then she goes to do the next task on her list, which is tighten and lubricate the zip line, which sounds dirty if you think about it. <laughs> um, I guess. I guess. So she gets onto a ladder and she's trying to like look at this zip line, which we love. We've seen the zip line before. We'll see the zip line again. And then she hears, uh, it draws her attention that the autovac is kind of acting up, losing control perhaps, and she turns around to figure out what's going on, and in doing so, she slips off of her sort of step stool ladder thing, and uh-oh, she starts to go sliding down the zip line. 
So she's careening down the zip line and she's yelling like, this is gonna look so bad on my report card, which it's funny and the way that it aged, at least on my TV, like HD TV screen is like, you know, you can kind of tell it's an effect and she's like, this isn't gonna look good on my report card, but it doesn't matter because it's so like, it's Claudia and the zipline and the warehouse and it brings us so much joy and we know that now shenanigans are afoot because Claudia has made a mistake. Like, it doesn't bother me at all yeah. if the effect doesn't look as good or if the line is cheesy about her report card because eventually she comes to a halt and we're focused in on, like, her little problem that she has to deal with now. And she goes, WWAD, what would Artie do? I love that so much. And, yeah, I think the reason that hasn't, they're not bad special effects, but it was just no. an earlier time in CGI and things weren't as simple to do, I guess, as they are now. So, I mean, you sometimes you just see the age of the show, but that doesn't matter, especially when the show is so character-driven. These are all just accessories to... A story about family. Yes, and we really got a feeling of that with our interview with Jack Kenny, because that was exactly what he saw in the show and what he brought to life in the show, as we learned as the non-sci-fi guy, but as the guy who is just a really good writer of character. Um, so she comes to a halt and she's like, okay. And you know, she's a very well-trained scientist. So she's like, I need to pick up momentum. Of course, though, we know that it's going to be real hard to get back to where she started. She's definitely in a jam. She tries to pick up momentum, but the autovac is continuing to malfunction. And in the worst possible way, it bumps into an emergency red button and the zip line kind of shoots off and it breaks that uh, connection where it's tied on the other end, which means Claudia is now, I mean, just in the, the terms of the physics of this, this is exactly what would happen. She's going to kind of careen down as the zip line gets disconnected. And so she goes flying through the warehouse. As she does so, we see her release the Baylor dodgeball and a silly string I wrote down sticky string, but that's a mistake. It's silly string, right? The actual product is silly string, but in the show it's sticky string. Oh, thank goodness. I'm not losing my mind. Okay, <laughs> so she releases the sticky string as well, which at least in the southwestern United States, we are very familiar with. Yes. Having that at a kid's birthday party or like 4th of July, it's, it's just an aerosol can that shoots silly string or very gross smelling string out of a can so we will encounter both of those things in depth as the episode goes on and we get a chiron not of a location outside of the warehouse but of inside of the warehouse that reads neutralizer processing center and we see these gears churning lots of purple goo which is amazing uh before we move to the next scene i have two things i want to say Great, and then I have one small thing. Okay, so my both of my things revolve around the Baylor dodgeball. Oh, yes! So, the screen readout says it's used for military dexterity and agility training. Warning, multiplies upon contact after the bludgeoning deaths, or acquired after the bludgeoning deaths of five cadets in 1972. 
Miranda knows this about me. I have a soft spot for animation that doesn't need to exist in fictional spaces. And so to me, the best part of this is the animated bouncing of the dodgeball on the card. (laughs) Because that means at some point, either Claudia or Artie or some agent that we never saw took the time to animate that, and that delights me. I love it. That's great. So that is all I had to say. So my thing is that in episode 102 of the podcast, we mentioned the steampunk elements And we also had Jack Kenny explain to us the name of the person who added those steampunk design elements. And this neutralizing area, which we get referred to as the Guri later, is a great example of that. Because one of the aesthetic touchstones of steampunk is gears, often inspired by 19th century clockwork. And so seeing it work in this way is completely on brand with the warehouse. And we've never seen this gooey before, but we absolutely believe it exists. And we believe it looks like this because it just makes sense. And that is what I would call excellent world building. Super excellent world building. And the other thing is we haven't seen the gooey before. I'm just going to call it that forever because I love it so much. But we have seen the effects of the Guri in other places. We've seen that somehow Artie was able to rain purple goo on Pete and Micah before. And that they have like little purple goo guns they can shoot at things inside the warehouse. And so that all has to come from somewhere. So that takes us to the Warehouse 13 office. And (laughs) Pete and Micah enter and announces that he brought donuts. And then he goes, well, donut, because he ate the rest of them. (laughs) And Pia and Micah are talking about what Artie could possibly be doing with the reports and probably why on earth he feels the need to keep them secret because that's not something someone normally keeps secret. Like, if you have a progress report at work, you're very aware it's going to, like, go to the HR department and that's where things go. And he says, well, who could be... Sorry, Micah says, well, who could be getting reports if it's not mrs frederick and he goes i don't know mr frederick it's <laughs> great um, it is great and then they notice a monitor a computer monitor with blinking ad signs and pete's like what's ad and mike just goes Ugh, artifact disturbance read the manual <laughs> and that's another reference to the manual and we're gonna get more mike is not gonna let it uh, let pete live it down literally like- ever And she shouldn't, because you know what? If you work in a wildly unpredictable supernatural superstructure, perhaps reading the manual would be helpful. I mean, you know that Pete and Micah are basically Hermione and Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So after Micah tells Pete to read the manual... They notice the vacuum cleaner repeatedly running into the wall on the balcony. So they walk out to the balcony to see that that is happening. And they look out and see that the zip line has fallen. And they call for Claudia. And then we slam to the opening credits. Yes, the title music comes in. And I watched this at my house and did my title music dance, which I always do. And um, Jillian's nodding because she knows. Oh, I know. I have participated in the title music (laughs) dance of many a show with Miss Miranda Butler. 
to, <laughs> I was just explaining to someone else that I always dance when the title music comes on and there is a different dance for every title music. As well you should because it is a wonderful moment to celebrate your joy in a show. Yes. And after the title music dance is done, we return and I just wrote it as Artie is doing a drug deal style drop. <laughs> like... <laughs> I am from Phoenix. I have witnessed this drug drop, not as an involved participant, but just as someone who lived in a major city. Oh, yeah. Like, the the two cars pull up like that. Yeah, they're not subtle. They they do that thing. Like, I've seen it. That's what he does. And we talk a lot about the ways in which Pete seems to mirror some of Artie's behaviors. But in this scene we sort of see a glimpse into the mind of a younger Artie when he wasn't boss man and when he was lower on the totem pole. And his behavior is so much like Pete's. It's amazing. He gets really chatty, which I never would have expected, but makes total sense. He starts asking the courier questions and the courier goes, you're talking, we don't talk. And he just, instead of not talking anymore which is what most people would do he'd be like oh i didn't think that was a rule i thought you weren't just particularly social (laughs) and then he the courier drives away and is done he's like i guess i was right and i was like okay pete (laughs) yeah it's really funny but i think Artie is getting so talkative because we know that he has a lot on his mind about mcpherson and he wants to talk to the higher-ups he's like send a message to the higher-ups and we get the idea that obviously mrs frederick and the regents in a few minutes are really concerned about mcpherson but so is Artie, and they're gonna need to have a meeting to to make this you know all come together and not surprisingly after that exchange suddenly our friend actor jung yo kim appears out of nowhere Again, I don't think he has a name in this show, but he is Mrs. Frederick's large and imposing bodyguard, and he just says she would like a word. And for specifically podcast fans out there, if we have any crossover fans with Welcome to Night Vale, first of all, hello and welcome. We also love Welcome (laughs) to Night Vale, but... The fact that he just appeared out of nowhere like Mrs. Frederick reminded me specifically of Trish Hidge, who worked for former mayor Pamela Winchell (laughs) in Night Vale. Um, And I have the quote right up here. Uh, At a point in the series, in episode 24, titled The Mayor, the mayor disappears and the following passage exists and reminded me very strongly of this. Uh, I am now quoting from the inimitable character of Cecil Palmer. Trish Hidge, one of Winchell's staffers, said, Mayors can disappear. It's not a big deal. She disappears all the time. She can fly and turn into a horse, too. It's perfectly within her rights as mayor to turn invisible, to disintegrate into a thin cloud of imperceptible existence. Hidge continued, In fact, I can disappear if I want to because I work for the mayor. I have all of the mayor's powers. I just don't use them all the time out of respect for the mayor. (laughs) Which I just believe is exactly what's happening with Mrs. Frederick's bodyguard. The bodyguard has all of the powers of Mrs. Frederick. He just doesn't use them all the time. Out of respect. And maybe he can turn into a horse too. We don't know. All hail. All hail. 
So that is all. I just, I had to share that reference. So that's awesome. And that's the end. Uh, we just cut back to the warehouse, which is very mysterious and exciting for the buildup. Yes. And in the warehouse, we see another close-up of the gooey where the gears grind to a halt. That's not great. Artie's computer shows the neutralizer dispersal system as offline. And then deeper in the warehouse, Pete tells Micah, okay, let's just follow the zip line. She's bound to turn up. Micah's very worried and hopes she's okay. Pete says, she's like bamboo. Bend her all you want. She'll never break. (laughs) (laughs) And as they're walking, they pick up a bedazzled headband. And a fun fact is that um, I was watching this sitting on the floor really close to the TV like a weirdo and when you sit really close to the tv you can't even tell that it says claudia's (laughs) name on it it's like the props team did a great job making something that is clearly homemade by a person who is like trying to be good at crafts but isn't it's so sweet and they're so talented these props people that they are extremely skilled and they had to sew sequins and beads poorly, which is so funny. Um, <laughs> but even funnier is the exchange that occurs between Pete and Micah, where Mike says, this is hers. And Pete says, how do you know? And she holds it up and it says her name in green beads and pink sequins. And then Micah says, we have to get rid of Artie's bedazzler. <laughs> which means Artie made that for Claudia, which we do get confirmed later. And that is just so sweet that he owns a bedazzler. Did he buy it for this purpose? Did he already have a bedazzler? Or did he just want to do something really sweet for Claudia? I just love it. I love everything about it. And I love it specifically because when... I'm trying to think of other shows, but we've seen it happen. It happens on Gilmore Girls. It happens on other things where a male adult character suddenly has like a a teen or that age daughter thrust upon him. Sometimes he overcompensates (laughs) by doing something like buying a bedazzler for a, you know, a 20 year old woman. Like he's, he's trying to be a dad and like, he's not, quite hitting it in the right you know zone yet but I think that's what it is and it's because he loves Claudia and and she means so much to him and Claudia really loves it like I don't think she's think I don't think she finds it to be a particularly fashionable accessory but she loves it well that's the thing I think she's carrying it around like as a sentimental thing. And she's she uses it earlier when she's fixing the vacuum cleaner, like, to help a <laughs> It's amazing. So that's when a dodgeball appears. Yes. It's bouncing in an aisle, just up and down. <laughs> it bounces menacingly. It does. And the screen we saw earlier actually clarifies that the dodgeball can bounce on its own, which is important because it's bouncing menacingly. Yes, and Micah looks to Pete as if to say, what? And as she does, the ball hits her in the head, and then Pete looks away, and when he does, it hits him in uh, the nuts. Feel free to believe that, future Miranda. (laughs) Well, you know what? I actually think it happens the other way around because it it hits Pete in the crotch first. And then here was my thought was like it goes for 
what you value the most. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't go for, like, Micah's breasts, right? It goes for Micah's head. So, like, Pete, you know, they they the crass thing to say is, like, you know, men think with their nether regions. <laughs> but, like, Micah doesn't. Like, Micah thinks with her head. Yeah. Pete, maybe, you know. I, I don't think he actually does. I think he's a very well-formed, fully thought-out character. But it's funny that that's the equivalent. Like, this is what's important to you? Well, Micah's brain is important to yes. her. Yes. Um, and each time it hits them, the ball multiplies, which we saw on the card when we first saw the readout but knowing and seeing are different things and it gets kind of terrifying very quickly um and that's when micah notices that it was acquired after the five bludgeoning deaths which is not great and the fact that it multiplies by hitting them whenever they look away is also terrifying and kind of a doctor who reference because it reminds i was gonna say weeping angels and luckily Micah knows where the nearest neutralizing station is, and so they're like, oh, well, we can fix this problem, and, uh, um, and they, they move, <laughs> they do something in, because I have a big background in theater, they Go do it. something that I love in stage work that I almost never see in filmed media, just because the comedy doesn't usually play as well, but they move in tableau, <laughs> they just, like, keep their position, and shuffle to the side without moving (laughs) like it's so funny and I just loved seeing that that was a very like theatrical thing to do and I love that they inserted that yes and so I love the way that uh Pete goes for that sprayer hose of neutralizer and he like holds it in like his um, so I used to do Aikido, which is a martial art. This is his, like, Aikido stance. <laughs> like, he is fighting. He is ready. Fists up, except for it's the neutralizer hose. And then it's like, meow. And there's not neutralizer coming out. And they're like, oh, no, this is not good. Um, and, and so they're like, ah, I hope, you know, what are we going to do? Pete at first assumes that Micah will know what plan B is. However... He's still using his brain because this guy knows how to play dodgeball. So he's like, you have to catch one of the dodgeballs to win. And perhaps we can use that dodgeball logic to make them, you know, go away. And so they come up with this plan that Micah will look away so that they attack her. And then he'll rush to catch one to, you know, win the dodgeball game. And so they do this. I think it's actually really great because it looks as if they actually had to like have a bunch of assistants throw dodgeballs at Joanne Kelly. I'm sure they like did. she's she's covering her face and kind of cowering and I'm like, oh, that looks like it's actually happening and it's possibly painful and like they're throwing dodgeballs at her. <laughs> which I hate first of all, I had to take PE in public school and I hate dodgeball. <laughs> and second of all, dodgeballs in particular, those red kickballs, they're like they're really heavily inflated. They hurt when they hit you. So it's totally plausible that at a, what I believe Baylor in the fiction of the show is a military base. I don't know if it's a real base or not, but those military kickballs for dodgeball or whatever you want to call them, they're for real and they're hitting Micah, but then they stop and we turn to see the most hilarious thing, 
which is a human-shaped pile of dodgeballs with Pete's shoes sticking out, almost <laughs> like a cartoon. It's so funny. And Micah's not super worried. I'm pretty sure she is 95% sure he's playing a joke, but just as she starts to tip over on the too-worried scale, he lifts up the dodgeball and goes, aha, and hops up, and all of the dodgeballs go shoom back into the one original ball, and the day is saved. And it's a cool effect when they go into the single dodgeball. That real. was great. For real. But he pops up and goes, who smells like tuna fish now, Rolf Grunsky? <laughs> Which, and he does like a victory dance, too. Yeah, and then Mike is like, uh, what's that? Because she totally heard and she wants him to know that she totally heard. And he's like, uh, nothing. But honestly, I can totally see that being a childhood insult that sticks with you. Because tuna fish, uh. you smell like tuna fish is like one of the worst things you can say to a grade schooler. <laughs> especially like you know a handsome charming you know like i'm sure pete as a kid was a ham right yeah like, he wants everyone to love him and like <laughs> so from there we enter a place called ted's diner where ted introduces herself her name is theodora but everyone calls her ted and she is a waitress and there are so many subversions in this scene. Oh, I love it. I will say what I have in my notes is this may be a good time, future Miranda, to insert the clip from Jack. Yes, absolutely. Because we asked him about this episode knowing it would be our next one. Yes. When I took over the show, there was nothing. It was two, warehouse, two secret service agents and a warehouse full of crazy. No backstory. No history, no other warehouses. Uh, they just picked 13 because it was a kooky, uh, crazy, scary number. I'll tell this story first and then I'll get to the regions. But I remember I was up, it was first season, I was up late in Toronto, I couldn't sleep. And I thought, and I thought to myself, what if there were 12 other warehouses? What if this is the 13th iteration of the warehouse? And the other ones were all in various, uh, they were always in whatever empire could protect them best. And the first one was, uh, in the library at Alexandria, because Alexander the Great exploits and he brought back artifacts and put them in the library. And we just and I just went through Wikipedia and looked for the various uh, empires of the world, the Holy Roman Empire, the, the Mongol Empire. And I, just, I, was, I sorted it all out and I wrote little blurbs on each one about why it was moved and when it was moved and the dates and the years. And I sent it all to Sci-Fi and I said, hey guys, what do you think about this for the mythology of the warehouse? And the next day it was on the website. I, I said, hey, I, you know, I have proof of that. I just wanted to know if you liked it. So we should make sure it's accurate. So, so it was all about inventing all that stuff. And I remember when they came up with the regents, the, uh, the, I won't say who it's sci-fi because I love them all. And I don't want to, I wouldn't want to badmouth anybody. But somebody had said they want, you know, they pictured robes and torches and, and, uh, and you know, really scary and dark. And I said, you know, I've seen that a million times. I've seen the scary lords and the scary things. And I think this is a warehouse that belongs to the people. And it feels to me like the people who control it should be average folks, should be people in everyday walks of life from all over the world, wherever we get them, they should be, I don't want scary robed figures. I think it should be a waitress and a, and a, and a you know, and, and, I, and I wanted the waitress in that diner to be the head regent. That was my, that was my pitch and I was told, by someone in sci-fi, I said, you can't have a waitress be the head regent. That doesn't make any sense. It, it demeans the whole show. I said, no, it doesn't. 
It, it's perfect. Jesus was a carpenter. This is that's the whole point. Just because she's a waitress doesn't mean she's an idiot. She could be the smartest waitress in the world. She can be clued in, isn't it? It wouldn't it be cool. But I lost that battle, but I did get to have the meeting in the diner, and I did get to have them be sort of people from all walks of life. So there wasn't because I wanted I wanted to play against all the sci-fi tropes that you normally see um, and make it make it that, that the warehouse belonged to everyone. It wasn't high and exalted. It was a place where where we stored our crazy. Mm. I love that. And Mrs. Frederick uh, is sitting at a booth. Artie joins her and Ted takes the order. The worst order I have ever heard. The manliest order, like the most traditionally manliest order, which is like that is what like an ad executive and madman would order at lunch. But this is part of the subversion, right? Yes, because that's what Ted, Ted's diner, we assume, is a man, but it's a woman. Mrs. Frederick, not only a woman, but a woman of color in this extremely important government position then does this very stereotypically masculine order but she doesn't do it in like that early feminism way of the 80s no to seem like a man she's doing it because it's what she wants to do it's not a power move it's just what she wants to do and would you like to state the order or shall i i do she orders steak bloody and two pieces of pie which it should be noted teddy did say she made herself and a black coffee yes um i love her um, and i assumed also that the two pieces of pie were like mrs frederick doing the thing where the man orders dinner for his date but that's not even it they're both for her because <laughs> and the waitress knows it she's like okay and for you Artie and Artie orders a salad and he wants the pie, but Lena has him on the diet, which is a callback. We've learned that before. Um, and it's amazing. Everything about this and how effortless it is and just the total instantiation of power that it is for Mrs. Frederick is incredible. Yes. And then he does order the house salad and then he goes, Lena has me on a diet. And then he goes, and one piece of pie, and then turns to Mrs. Frederick and goes, she made it herself, at which point, Mrs. Frederick full-on smiles. <laughs> like, for the first time. She loves time. Artie! She loves him so much, but, like, we see teeth. We have never seen teeth. It was amazing. Um, yes. Then, Mrs. Frederick starts asking about the warehouse, and cases, and then incidents, and... Artie starts to get suspicious and goes, you know about all of these. Why are you asking? And she just goes, I'm forgetful. Refresh my memory. And he's like, oh, no, I thought we were going to have pie. Like, he doesn't say that, but that's what's on his face. And she goes, so you were saying about Paris. And that's, for me, when we get a bigger sense that Artie is being extremely scrutinized because mm. Paris, if you recall, is when they were stealing Marie Antoinette's uh, guillotine blade. And that was legit an incident because Pete and Michael were fighting and it caught 
the attention of some guards, and then they had to hurt some bystanders who they might not have had to hurt otherwise, you know? So that's not great, but it's also completely understandable for people on a new team having to deal with it. So it's, on the one hand, we all understand, but they're also really digging whoever they are, whoever is prompting Mrs. Frederick to ask these questions is really digging into stuff that can make Artie look pretty bad. Yes, and that's what I think is great. Two two kind of ideas on this. First, if you were watching the show as it originally aired and you missed one of those episodes, the tone and the delivery from the actors does enough that we know she lists Paris, Las Vegas, Colorado. She lists these things in this serious manner that even if you didn't recall or hadn't seen the episode, you would know that Artie's in trouble. But then on the other hand, if you do know and you watch those episodes, you understand that they do make Artie look bad, but there was a reason and it all worked out. And so it's like you you get why the boss would be upset, but you also know that Artie did the right thing in every situation. Completely. And especially that Pete, Pete and Micah did the right thing, because that's the first step that Artie thinks they are being scrutinized. Yes. And then we go back into the stacks at the warehouse where we hear Pete call out, Claudia, there's half a donut in the warehouse. So <laughs> so just so we are clear, before there was a whole donut and now he's being even more honest. No, I ate the other half of the last donut. Yeah, maybe someone did smell like tuna fish in elementary school, <laughs> Pete. He couldn't wait for his lunch and he ate it. Um But the other thing I wanted to point out for Jill is that they see the electric shocks, these kind of lightning bolts moving through the warehouse, and they are purple. And this indicates to us, based on our color theory, that they are the warehouse's own energy. They're like within the warehouse, they're not necessarily negative attacking forces, but they're basically... Micah makes a remark like, they're bigger than usual. These shocks that are moving through the warehouse are abnormal. It is not that the the warehouse wants to hurt us, but something is out of sync. Something is not working correctly. And I also like, I can't remember if it's in the scene or a later scene because I didn't write it down, but it the moment is in my brain where we learn it is static electricity specifically that bounces around, yeah. which I think is really cool. Um, and we have that from the uh, Volta's lab coat as well, that Artie was gathering the static and the, the stuff with his feet on the rug from the warehouse. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. Uh, what's the word? Continuity. Wow! That was amazing! <laughs> I just, I narrowed my eyes at Jillian really carefully, and she said the exact word I was thinking of. It was amazing. Thank you, thank you. Um, so... Then Pete sees a ladder and gets an idea and immediately starts climbing the ladder. And I feel like under almost any other circumstance, Micah would be like, wait, hey, wait a minute. Have you thought about this? But this time she's just like, okay, well, be, be careful. Because <laughs> she's, she's very worried about Claudia and she trusts that he can climb a ladder. But I think in her brain, she's always like, Pete's going to touch something, he's going to knock something over, I'm going to get trapped in something again. Like, there's just lots of artifacts around, and he is not great at spatial reasoning involving his own body. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, so 
he clearly sees something important and he doesn't tell Micah what it is, but he's like, go this many aisles over, turn this way. Like he's, he's serious about, we need to go investigate something. And when they go in that direction, when Micah approaches it, they find basically an exact copy of Lena's B and B. And Pete says, as they go in, uh, or, that it has a Claudia-shaped hole in the roof, which is hilarious because I'm sure it's not actually Claudia-shaped, but uh, he can tell that that's where she fell. Yes. And I wrote that the lighting is super interesting. And all of the lighting and all of the camera angles that we see in this place, because, look, they didn't build a whole new Lena's B&B. They just used the one they had and shot it differently. I mean, I'm not saying this from a place of knowing this, as fact because someone has said it I'm saying this from a place of knowing it as fact because that's how tv works but um the angle makes it look like it's on a sound stage which it probably is always on a sound stage but they it looks like it's inside another building it doesn't look fresh and outside and that's really weird and unnerving and they get in and we're seeing an angle from the staircase that feels unusual everything just feels very strange in a really good way in a good camera work cinematography choice kind of way and i want to point this out it's a smidge early but it is perfect timing because when they see the painting in the in the lena's bnb someone describes it as salvador dali-esque and that maybe uh there's a lot to unpack that would be interesting there but my thought was actually, if you've seen Van Gogh's paintings, like the, the painting Van Gogh did of his bedroom, where the the angles of the floor, it's like the colors are a little too contrasted and it seems like you're, you've got this almost like a lens flare. Those are the effects that I was getting from the interior of this house. And I think that it's artsy, that it's connected to mental illness, as we know um, Van Gogh dealt with depression. Um, and that's a theme in the episode. I just loved, like you said, how they take this totally familiar set and make it into a scary, unfamiliar place. It's awesome. It's totally brilliant. And so Pete walks into the not real B&B. Micah follows him, and he's so confident. He's like, we're going to get Claudia. We're going to get her out of here and make sure she's okay. It's all going to be fine. And just as the door closes behind him, Claudia runs down the stairs. Is like, no, 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 don't let the door close. But it closes. And before she can really explain what's happening, Pete tries to open the door again. And he walks out and then comes back through, like, the kitchen area. And then pokes his head out of the front door again and then his head comes out of the kitchen area, and he's looking at his own butt. Do you know what I said is that it's sort of like a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Yes. It's like, I'm going to go in this door and come out this nonsensical other door, um, which is just, I think we get a lot of this kind of cartoon reference points, like when he says there's a Claudia-shaped hole in the room. Yeah. In a cartoon, there would literally be the shape of Claudia's body, like, it works really well, and it also is scary and mysterious. Everything about it works. Yes, and just as we realize that this ain't good, we go out on a shoop, shoop, shoop box. Yes, and when we return from commercial, 
we first get an angle on the neutralizer dispersal unit, which has reached a critical mass. And, you know, things are, alarms are sounding, gears are clogging. And lightning is actually coming from the gears, which is real scary. Ah, yes. Yes. And then we go back to the house. So we, as an audience, understand what's wrong, but the people, the main characters, have not, and they're still stuck. And more importantly, things are getting worse outside the B&B, and they can't get to that to fix it. Um, and <laughs> then just a tiny stakes raising that is hilarious and disgusting. Claudia <laughs> says, by the way, if anyone has to use the bathroom, don't flush. And she shakes her jacket like it's wet. And I'm like, gross, 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 gross. Which actually makes perfect and also gross sense. Because if nothing can leave. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um... Micah says, okay, let's just wait and think about this for a second. So, of course, I wrote, so, of course, Pete jumps out the window. Because, of course, he does. Yes. And that's what I was saying earlier um, with, like, his, I'm going to act on instinct, and I'm going to solve his problems with my physical presence. That's what he does. And he flies into the house again, which is a cool effect, too, that that's what happens when he jumps out the window. And I really wanted there to be, like, a, a montage, but there wasn't. But before Micah can yell at him, and I just want to say this because as a person who did gymnastics for several years as a child, um, Claudia <laughs> gives him an 8.5 and tells him that next time he should stick the landing. And what I really appreciated about that moment was she did the men's salute like after you dismount from something um in gymnastics you signal to the judges you're done by um doing a certain thing with your arms for men you put both arms up and then both arms down and it just shows you've got your balance you're on form whatever for women it's one arm and then you switch to the other arm that is just something i noticed and appreciated and i just thought well done claudia well done. That's amazing because she says, you, Pete, you know, a man need to stick the landing and she does his thing. The other amazing part that I, I'm sure Warehouse 13 has done before is that for comedic effect, there's like that, it's like a cartoon karate chop sound, like whoop, whoop. Yes. When she sticks her arms up and down and then Pete is like, yeah, okay, and then his arms do the whoosh sound, too. So, like, for for the comic uh, effect, that happens. And we're going to get, like, a, what's it called, a three-beat on it. We'll get that whoosh-whoosh sound one more time later, which is very funny. So I think that was just perfect, perfect comic relief in this really intense moment. Yes, and then we go back to Ted's diner. And so Mrs. Frederick says, and you trust Pete and Micah? And Artie goes, with my life, but then brushes past it to say something else. But I just, oh, that's so sweet that he yeah. admits that. But also, this wouldn't be a secret for Mrs. Frederick. And he, I don't think Mrs. Frederick would ever ask, do you trust Pete and Micah with, in earnest? Because he, she knows she would never yeah. leave Artie with someone that he couldn't trust, you know? Um so that, I think, also is when Artie realizes that this isn't all coming from Mrs. Frederick. Yes, absolutely. 
So just as Artie is asking Mrs. Frederick, what is happening? Why are you asking all these things? He notices Ted standing behind him, taking notes on her little order pad. And he goes, do you mind? And she's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. And just keeps standing there. And he's really confused. And she nods at the person who runs over to close the restaurant. Yeah, thank you. She gives the signal. The guy closes the door, puts the sign up. They're like, we thought that couple would never leave because it's time to begin. And what I love is that as, you know, these words are sinking in, we see these great shots of all the different diners in the restaurant kind of turning over their shoulders. And what really sticks out is that these people are different ages, different races, different walks of life. Like every person who turns over their shoulder is like representative of like a different life experience. And they turn around to focus in on Artie and Mrs. Frederick and Ted. Yes, and this is the other place where you may choose to insert that clip from Jack. He gave a lot of great insight into why he made the choices that he made and why he chose and really fought for making the regents normal everyday people. Not a secret society, not wealthy people, not people in positions of power, just people which is beautiful, and he actually makes a joke at the expense of the network in the episode, because in our interview, he says that the network, as a side note, one of the really interesting things from our interview with Jack Kenny was knowing that anything that was going to potentially be a longer-term arc in the show or a character that was being introduced had to be pitched to the network first, and so the network really wanted him to do the sort of 90s, early 2000s thing. He was just not having it. He wasn't interested in doing that. And so he told them no. And then he made a joke about what were you expecting? People in robes and half candlelight. And it was just beautiful. And I want to take this moment for anyone playing the game at home to make a Buffy reference, which is that we see this in Buffy, which is, again, a, a little bit older than this show, but is also parallel in that season season five of Buffy, Buffy and her crew have to answer to the higher authority. And in their case, the higher authority is a bunch of upper-class white people, mostly men, like one woman, and what Buffy does that's subversive is she calls them out on being a bunch of stuffy men who are afraid of her, a young woman. So the, sh the show, in that sense, is aware of it. But this show takes it one step further, where instead of saying the powers are these kind of white, upper-class people, it's like, no, they're not even. And, and it's better for it and more modern and... and um, intersectionally feminist for it that Jack fought for this to be the regents and um, in the interview you know we have that clip he says he wanted the waitress Ted to be the head of the regents and it doesn't really come across he said they didn't quite let him do it but it, it seems like she's still in a very high position of authority and she's a waitress and who cares 
right? Your occupation does not determine your intellectual or moral capabilities whatsoever. And in a few minutes, um, Mr. Valda is actually going to say that verbatim. It's amazing. And we learn that these people, by the way, are called the regents because the higher authority is something that Artie doesn't register right away. He goes, higher, what higher? And then he audibly gulps and says, the regents. Like, he's a little nervous that the regents are asking about him. And now, for my actor spotlight. Anyone who is a fan of science fiction in any way can probably see this spotlight coming from a mile away. Yes, that's right. We are highlighting actor Mark Shepard. You know, that guy you've seen in everything. <laughs> his One of his earliest credits is on The X-Files. Yes! Gosh, his credit list is unbelievably long, and it spans sci-fi, fantasy, and also just staple shows of different eras. Like, the practice isn't sci-fi, but it was a huge show. He was on that. He was on Star Trek Voyager. He was on Charmed and Firefly in two episodes of Firefly as Badger. Um, he was on Murder, She Wrote. There's nothing he can't do. I'm trying to... Okay, he was a huge role on 24. He was on In Plain Sight. He was on NCIS. He was on Battlestar Galactica in six episodes as the character of Romo Lampkin. He was on Dollhouse. He was on Chuck. He was on two episodes of Doctor Who, um, Day of the Moon and The Impossible Astronaut, which, by the way, deserve a special shout out from us because Mark Shepard's father, W. Morgan Shepard, is also an actor with over a hundred credits to his name who also appeared in a lot of sci-fi in his time. Sadly, he passed away in January of this year. But W. Morgan Shepard, Mark Shepard's father, played an older version of Mark Shepard's character in the same episode, Impossible Astronaut. Whoa! I know that episode and that just blew my mind! Right? Amazing! Amazing! He was in War of the Worlds. He was in Leverage as the character Jim Sterling. That was a 10-episode arc. He was, of course, in Warehouse 13 as the character that we meet him as, Benedict Valda. He is currently on Doom Patrol. But something I think a lot of people will definitely know him from is his longest-running role from 2009 to 2017 as Crowley in Supernatural. Oh my gosh, I know most of those shows, and they're all amazing. What an actor, what a list. Yes, and he's one of those actors that I love who, if you are like me and Miranda and you're a fan of sci-fi, you probably know his name because you'd make it a point to know the names of that kind of person. But he is the kind of person who melts so completely into his roles while still having such a strong presence that you don't even think of him by his name. You think of him as that character. Um, so yes, that is who our regent, Mr. Benedict Valda, is. And he's the one who says, to equate judgment and wisdom with occupation is at best insulting. And like, yes, 
who do you want to be the regents? Kings, popes, politicians? Like, no, I love how heavy that line is because if we think of that line about kings in terms of Western European history, like those are often power-hungry, narcissistic people. We think of popes. Popes aren't always bad, um, but they are associated with religion and religious power, and that wouldn't be the person you want leading a uh, you know group of artifacts. And even politicians, we know that the warehouse is currently in America where politics can get really corrupt and scary. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> and um, so he's like, this is who we are and of course this is who we are and it goes to exactly what jack said where the warehouse belongs to the people and in a way that is amazing those people that we see in the diner are representative of a variety of perspectives in the united states which i love and i loved it the first time i watched it not having spoken to jack and i just thought wow this is such a beautiful statement he chose to make it's even more powerful after speaking to him for me, knowing how hard he fought for it. This was a message that wasn't just something he wanted to say. This was something he felt we all needed to hear. And then moving forward a bit, Valda turns to Mrs. Frederick and says, Irene, blah, 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 something. And Hardy <laughs> leans toward Mrs. Frederick and goes, Irene? Like, I have learned a thing about you. And she goes, Mrs. Frederick. <laughs> like, very it's sternly. It's so good because Artie is learning all this stuff he didn't know before, which includes Mrs. Frederick's first name. Um, so we get the idea that when we are in the home turf of the warehouse, Artie is the number one arbiter of knowledge. But when we're outside of that realm, you know, he doesn't know everything. And that should make us alarmed because this is scary what's happening. And uh, then Mr. Valda starts listing off some of the things that have gone badly just as Mrs. Frederick was doing. And Artie rushes to defend Pete and Micah. And that's when Mrs. Frederick makes him realize their abilities are not the ones in question. Which makes Artie realize that his abilities are in question, which is really scary and sad. But before he realizes that, when he thinks he needs to fight for them, he goes, Micah and Pete are probably the best agents the warehouse has ever had, like, without hesitating. And so when he realizes, oh, this is about me, and he sort of sad and betrayed looks at Mrs. Frederick and goes, like, about me? And he goes, and she goes, not just you. And then he realizes it's also about McPherson, and he, he's starting to put pieces together, but he's not quite there yet. Um, and from there, we move back into fake Linus. Pete gets to be the figure-outer. I know Jill is nodding excitedly because it's great when this happens. They are, you know, brainstorming like, okay, well, this is exactly the, sorry, this is exactly Lena's B&B, which means that some part of it is an artifact and it couldn't be removed, so they removed the whole thing and built a new Lena's. And... So they have to look for something different in this B&B from the B&B that they know. Which is so great. Yes. Their little uh, go around of like, that chair. No, you slept in that chair last week. Like whatever is, it's perfect because it's how you would 
react to like oh I have to notice something new about my own home it's great right and they also they haven't been there forever not years like I still notice things about where I live and I've lived here for a while it's just something you notice over time but what I love is that immediately Pete and Claudia start running around looking for things and Micah is just taking inventory because you know she's got the entire place memorized (laughs) and so while they're like guessing and doing crazy things she goes it's the painting because she notices immediately there's a painting above the fireplace with a depiction of yeah the living room in Lena's B&B and when Claudia notices it she's like oh cool weird and she sets the lamp that she had picked up on the couch and then Micah notices that when Claudia moved the lamp the lamp moved in the painting oh my gosh that's that's actually really creepy if you were in that situation and that happened like what a great just tiny detail it allows them to realize the painting is in fact supernatural I also like that Pete's expression is curious Micah's is slightly alarmed, and Claudia's just smiling. She's just like, this is weird, I'm here for it. And then Pete does exactly what I would expect Pete to do. No regard at all for what the negative consequences might be. Grabs a Sharpie and draws <laughs> a very cartoonish-looking door on the painting. It's like, well, maybe if it works like that, we could just draw a door and get out of here. And not only does the door appear... But it looks exactly like on the painting. It looks very cartoonish. And I love the effect they were able to make out of that. That was a good effect. It's a, like, I don't want to make this reference because I'm going to embarrass myself. But it's like Blue's Clues. No, it is. It's like real humans living in a cartoon world. And then I love this because I only noticed it. um, Like, you get to see the, the sort of cartoon drawing door up here. And then when Pete goes to open it, you don't see that. You just see from the outside looking in a door opening that's rectangular like a normal door. And I actually like it because I don't think they could have convincingly made it look like a random gap in the wall opened because it's probably not in budget. But when you show it from the other side and you had seen the imposed drawing over it, you're like, oh yeah, of course. Of course he just opened up a random part of the wall with like books on it into a door. Yeah, she runs through and he's about to follow and then she comes back through the staircase and goes, uh, don't bother. But I like that we also see Micah smiling a lot more than we normally do in this episode. She's having fun. And that's what I think is interesting. Um, when this all first happens, Claudia is like, oh, the goofy shenanigans of the warehouse. Like, Pete and Micah are going to get us out of this mess. And I think that these agents have to have that sense of trust and also a sense of humor in, in the world they live in. But when it gets down to the wire, we're going to see that you know, they trust each other and they're all very good at what they do, but it gets really close to disaster at the end. And then that's where Claudia and Pete and Micah aren't smiling so much anymore, even though some of this earlier adventure is is quite funny. So I just think the emotional um, development of this episode works super well. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it goes back a lot to what Eddie said in his interview. They all know how to be fun and goofy. But they all have like these different thresholds at which point they know they need to get it together and be serious person. They always get serious enough when they need to. 
they have different definitions of when need to occurs, but they do what they got to do. And so Pete is frustrated and he throws the pen at the painting, which causes like a ripple through the house. As if it's made of canvas. Yes. That's funny because as soon as you said it, I was like, you're right. <laughs> um, I was just thinking like the house is a big voodoo doll. <laughs> but yeah, it's a canvas. It's a canvas voodoo doll. And um, then Pete does something which is the opposite of what you should do if you realize the house is uh, subject to, like, being destroyed by your movements. He sticks his thumbnail into the painting. And when he rips it a little bit, they see a rip appear in the wall. And uh, Claudia especially gets really excited, like, yeah, that's it, which is awesome. And then I love Micah's brain because she goes, I know where we keep the letter opener and just immediately goes to the spot where they keep the letter opener. I can never find my letter opener. Yeah, she goes right for the letter opener. They cut a nice little square hole into the painting, which is good because if you left Pete, he would have just punched a hole through the canvas. <laughs> then it would have collapsed. <laughs> which which would have worked, but possibly to the detriment of everybody involved. <laughs> um, so they escape back into the warehouse, but that's when they realize maybe they should have stayed inside. There is an absolute thunderstorm gathering at the top of the ceiling. It's scary. And we go to commercial break, which is another excellent commercial break. All the commercial breaks in this episode are also the exact kind of great commercial breaks we've talked about before. Everything about this episode is just firing on all cylinders for me. So when we get back, the gooey is showing that it is officially in the critical mass zone. Um, and the readings are at below 25%, which what I took that to read that it's being dispersed to less than 25% of the warehouse, which means that's a lot of artifacts that are interacting that should not be interacting. Yeah, we see this. Claudia rushes to the backup terminal so that the characters can figure this out. And she makes this comment like, Artie speaking to her like why would you install these backup terminals you crazy red-haired girl something like that and she's like aha I have terminals I can look at what happened and this is when we mention that she has also read the manual and in chapter 197 it explains what's going on Claudia basically says that the guri which is like the what's it called neutralizer dispersal area is like a coolant system in a nuclear facility and they currently have half an hour until they reach China Syndrome, which is a Jane Fonda movie from 1979 about a nuclear power plant incident. Yes, um, I also want to make a childhood media reference where they don't actually say woogity woogity in Warehouse <laughs> 13, but when she's doing the exchange between her and Artie and playing both roles, she's like, because you never know when you might need one of these, Artie. Pete sticks his hand out and she does like the finger wiggly things in his palm, which if you grew up watching Rocket Power on Nickelodeon, like I did, that is what uh, the little team of skateboarders would do to each other. Instead of like high-fiving, they would go woogity, 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 and like do that weird thing with their palms. I'll put a gif in there for you if I can find it, but uh, I appreciated that, especially because 
uh, Allison Scalioni comes from a Nickelodeon background. Yes. And so they're looking at the Guri on the map and they kind of like can see where they have to go to get to the um, neutralizer area. And it seems like a long way. They have to go around a bunch of aisles and stuff. And this is where Pete says, like, we don't have time. We've got to cut through the dark vault. Um, And And Claudia is so excited. And she's like, all right, let's go. Pete instantly goes into dad mode. Like, it's not Mm. a fun time anymore. He's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. We signed up to risk our lives. You didn't. Micah is torn. Micah loves Claudia. But she also really does want to protect anyone who is under her care. But she ultimately decides to let Claudia come because she read the manual. And that's the thing is that Micah, I think Micah's like, no, I actually agree with Pete this time. Um, they're real. I mean, they have half an hour till the warehouse explodes. So if they can cut down on time, they have to take the risk. And then... Claudia has proven herself, not just right now, but in previous episodes throughout Micah's time knowing her, to be capable and intelligent and helpful. So she's like, I really want to protect Claudia too, but I think she can help us. And Claudia's excited! And this is what I mean, is like, we see her being naively, not in a bad way, but just like, okay, things are really bad, but Pete and Micah always pull through. We're going to make it through. I'm going to get to go with them and see this crazy thing happen. Um, And so she even says something like, suicide mission with a team. Well, think about it this way. Claudia's never had a female role model since she was a young child. She loves my she just had joshua yeah she loves joshua and she loves artie and she loves pete but the dynamic she has with micah is more precious in the way that like rare gemstones are precious it's precious because it's less abundant and anytime micah compliments her you can just see this glow coming off of her it's really beautiful and so they go off and then we return to the diner where artie is getting really annoyed especially at questions that seem to have nothing to do with mcpherson and that's when valda brings up dickinson becoming involved and artie is like we are both government agents i am reaching out to him in the normal course of my duties and that is when i made the actually in my notes the exact same buffy reference that you did the episode is checkpoint by the way in season five and it ultimately comes down to the fact where artie says listen McPherson knows the rules. And if we're going to make me get in trouble for every time I break the rules, then McPherson's going to win because he's allowed to break them. And if I can't, then I can't play at his level. And then Valda says, and this is another Buffy reference, you get emotional. That's the problem with McPherson is he also got emotional. You also got emotional, Artie, about Claudia. This is the end of the discussion where they're not questioning Artie's dedication but his future. And that is where we cut back to the warehouse. Where Claudia is able to hack into the dark vault and she's got some great dialogue here. Claudia explains that she has to hack the grid because she obviously doesn't actually have the security clearance to get into the dark vault, but she's also smarter than everyone who built the security system in the first place, so it'll be fine. So Micah goes, can, can you do this in time? And she goes, Pope Catholic Bear, wor- Bear Woods, you know the drill, which I love. <laughs> 
I didn't hear that. I just heard her speak quickly, so it's great to know what that line is. It's so great, and by the time she's done with that line, the dark vault opens, and we see a close-up of a sign that reads, Warning, sensory activated artifacts. Obey all advisory indicators. And, may I say, the warning sign is purple. Yes! Because it is for your safety. And those artifacts um, have purple circles of light around them, which I think ties in so nicely with that caution sign and what we know about the Dark Vault and how dangerous it is. Like, you can't even step within a certain distance of them. Um, And so Micah is like, these are containment fields. Don't touch anything. That's when Pete is like, well, how come they're still in these protection fields when the warehouse is going haywire and Claudia goes oh well because of the backup generators they should hold and her karma sucks because then things begin to shut down and they don't have very far to go like we saw on their map it's a quick shortcut through the vault but to get out again there's a lot of techno babble. It seems real. I mean, ASCII is real. There's an FTL ASCII binary something something required for Claudia to get out. And so it's going to take her a second. And that's when Pete, being Pete, is kind of looking at the artifacts and he gets under the thrall of one of them. And I think that he wouldn't have gotten under the thrall if the containment fields were working at their full strength because he's not going anywhere he shouldn't he's just looking at things which for pete is actually fairly restrained so i made a list of all of the artifacts that i saw in there Ah! (laughs) i love you um and then i will talk about the ones that pete actually looked at poor bella just got so worried (laughs) did you hear her it's okay honey go back to bed your enthusiasm is alarming (laughs) so the artifacts that i noticed in the Dark Vault were. The first one I saw is the Aztec Bloodstone. You know, that is actually pretty intense that the first artifact they encountered was Dark Vault worthy. Um, I saw a piece of perfectly mint condition ancient Greek pottery. Then, of course, Sylvia Plath's typewriter. We'll talk about that later. A top hat, a sad clown painting, an old mask of indeterminate origin, a brain in a jar. Yikes. A saxophone. And an old scuba mask, like in Scooby-Doo, at the bot- like one of those, but a very small one, like for a child. And then the one that Pete notices, which is a weird baby porcelain doll that's smiling. And he goes, hey, it's little so guy, what are you in for? And then its face changes from like that sort of vacant doll expression into like this evil grin and he freaks out and backs up which is actually the correct course of action in any other circumstance yeah and all of these things it's partly the lighting it's also like they all have what's clearly an uncanny age to them you know in the way that like old porcelain dolls are always creepy oh i I also saw like an accordion or whatever the version of that is called that has the keyboard on it too. I don't can't remember. Um, that that's what I saw. And then Pete, as he backs up, becomes trapped in the containment field of the typewriter, which appears to kind of move. But just as he gets trapped, the dark vault door closes and we go out to commercial break on a Farnsworth. And we return for Act Five, and we are in the warehouse. And we see another glimpse of the storm cloud gathering 
in the stacks, which is now storm clouds. In fact, I would go so far as to say an entire storm system. <laughs> and then we hear Mrs. Frederick's voice and Micah goes, oh, thank God, Mrs. Frederick. And then she goes, we are calling for an emergency evacuation. And they're like, oh, it's a recording. Dang it. And then someone, I think it might be Claudia, says, I think that's the most I've ever heard her say. And then Micah has Claudia step back because Claudia's struggling to get back into the dark vault and they just don't have time for that anymore. And Micah does a really cool high kick and just defeats the keypad. It's amazing. And... Claudia gives her a high five for yes, it. Yes, it's so great. So much passing of the Bechdel test happens in this episode that I'm going to want to talk about later. But I'm just so thrilled. Um, and so they get in. They realize that Pete is at Sylvia Plath's typewriter. Micah goes into literary mode and is like about to explain all about Sylvia Plath. And Claudia goes, Micah, I spent some time in the bell jar. Like, I don't need this explained to me. And I believe that we have an expert to consult right about now. Anna Queering, from Washington University in St. Louis, received her master's degree in English from the University of California, Riverside, and is currently pursuing her PhD in English. She works in the fields of both literature and gender and sexuality studies, with specialties in modernism and women writers. So the first thing that Micah says is, Sylvia Plath, she wrote the poem Ennui and ultimately took her own life. And so we're going to pause there because that is the introduction to Plath's typewriter that we get. So first... Sylvia Plath uh, was an American poet and novelist born in 1932. Um, And so in the scholarly world, she's probably best remembered for these intense tour de force poems. They have a lot of really exciting imagery, a lot of explicitly feminist themes talk a lot about mental illness, gender, femininity, and nature, especially bees. (laughs) Um, And her novel, The Bell Jar, is also a staple. Um, In the popular sphere, she's probably best remembered as a tragic figure. So she died by suicide at age 30. She had a lot of struggles with what we would call depression uh, or maybe bipolar, although she didn't, you know, have that word. Um, And so the tragedy of her death has become even a kind of pop culture reference of sorts. And so in some ways, she's remembered almost more as a kind of historical figure than as a writer specifically. So... If you have read Sylvia Plath before, I think The Bell Jar is uh, something that people do often read. We'll get to that later, but what Micah mentions right off the bat is she wrote the poem Ennui. And this is great timing because we know this episode came out in 2009, and Ennui is a Petrarchan sonnet written by Sylvia Plath. But it was written while she was an undergraduate in college and not actually published in any popular way. So it was dug up in the year 2006 and published for the first time. So Ennui, this Petrarchan sonnet, would have been actually really in the minds of a literary person like Micah because it had just been published three years before and everyone was really excited to see a new Plath poem after, you know, she had, you know, passed away at least 50 years prior, so new work by her. And Ennui, which is the specific idea and artifact invoked by um, the typewriter and by this line of dialogue, is the French word for boredom. And it 
in philosophy is a little bit bigger than that. It's tied to existentialism. So people like Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Pascal say that ennui is connected to the meaninglessness in life because you're so bored, there's there's nothing to live for, there's no point, so all you have is boredom. And people like Heidegger, boo, who I hate, <laughs> um, explains that boredom forces the individual to confront nothingness and thus experience existential dread. So on the one hand, by invoking the poem Ennui, the show is doing something a little bit different by not just jumping to the bell jar or the fact that Sylvia Plath died by suicide, but on the other hand, even Ennui, a poem which is not really about depression, is still about depression. Um, so I'm going to have my friend Anna read the poem for us, and you can do your own analysis. This is Ennui. Tea leaves thwart those who court catastrophe, designing futures where nothing will occur. Crossing the gypsy's palm and yawning, she will still predict no perils left to conquer. Jeopardy is Jeju now. Naive night finds ogres out of date and dragons unheard of, while blase princesses indict tilts at terror as downright absurd. The beast in Jamesian Grove will never jump compelling heroes dull career to crisis. And when insouciant angels play God's drum, while bored arena crowds for once look eager, hoping toward havoc, neither pleas nor prizes shall coax from doom's blank door, lady or tiger. I mean, I think if she wrote this as an undergrad, I think it's this very young sense that, like, there's nothing new under the sun, and I feel like I've seen the whole world. I'm sort of jaded and too experienced, even though I'm so young. Um, and she's, this is very typical of class in that she's using a lot of sort of, like, large-scale mythic imagery, talking about ogres and princesses and tea leaves, um, to talk about something that's more mundane. So she's sort of uh, stitching those two together. Um, the reference at the beginning of the second stanza, the beast in Jamesian Grove, is an extremely pretentious reference to uh, the Henry James story, The Beast in the Jungle, if you're familiar with that story, which I know you are, Miranda, which is about um, uh, a man who feels that an unknown, unnamed, exciting, and sort of scary fate will befall him, and he's just waiting for it to come. Um, and so she's saying, we, we might feel, we might anticipate or hope for a doom that never actually comes and nothing ever arrives. I like that Micah uses context clues about Pete's behavior to realize that that's the relevant poem here because she yes. realizes that what the typewriter is doing is sucking the life out of him. If any of them had to come into contact with that artifact, I think the most lively person is Pete. So I think he might be the strongest against this, but it's already affecting him really, really quickly. And that's scary. And Pretty quickly, Micah realizes that she has to deal with this, but they also need to fix the other issue. But Micah tells Claudia to go fix the Guri, start fixing it on her own, and Micah and Pete will catch up with her later. And Claudia looks a little f afraid. And Micah takes her attention away from Pete for a minute and very earnestly says, I trust you. You can do this. You've read the manual. You've spent more time in this place than me or Pete have because you've been doing all the inventory stuff with Artie. Like, you've got this. 
and Claudia is elated. She is so happy to just have the trust of this woman who she really looks up to, and she just goes off to do her thing, and Micah starts to deal with Pete, and from there, we go back to the diner. Yes. So, back at the diner, Artie decides he's not going to put up with this, uh, Mrs. Frederick is like, don't do anything rash. And of course he's going to because he's Artie. <laughs> and so Valda is giving a, Artie a talking to like, well, you're going to start making up your own rules. And then what are we going to do? You know, which is fair if we go back to Valda's dialogue about like kings and corrupt politicians. That's what they do. They make up their own rules so that they are always in control. But Artie's like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we have to do. Because, like we've said before, first of all, Artie knows McPherson. They were best friends. They loved the same woman. They were partners as warehouse agents for years and years. So he knows what McPherson will do. He knows the rules and that McPherson knows the rules. And McPherson could be the scariest possible adversary because he will know what the warehouse agents will and won't do. And that's like, when he is looking around the room and trying to explain this to the regents, that's when he realizes it. He's like, oh, you guys are afraid. Like, they're terrified of what McPherson could do. And this is sort of what, you know, the, the conclusion Buffy had come to in the episode that's very similar is that the people who are the bureaucrats in charge are terrified of someone who is not only actively threatening the warehouse, but is also threatening the status quo and the rules and regulations that they have in place. So Artie is like, yeah, well, like, I'm your best bet, basically, at stopping McPherson. So you can either fire me or kill me. Or let me do my job. Yes! Or let him do what he does best, and he storms out, and it's perfect. And um, also, though, just, like, fire me or kill me, like, the fact that that, even if he said it in anger, I don't know, but that that is a thing he's thinking of is, like, that they're so top secret that if a warehouse agent goes bad or a warehouse worker goes bad, they kill them. Like, we find out later in the series what they actually do to those people. But um, it's scary that Artie is thinking, like, that it's life or death, not from McPherson only, but from his own bosses. I think that it was more the accusation that he might become the next McPherson that made him say that. Oh, right. Because it's like, oh, if you really think I'm that bad, then kill me. But I don't think he really thinks that they're going to do it. And then what I also love is Mrs. Frederick is obviously the best in the world at keeping her cool. But when he storms out, she really suppresses a smile. She just goes, I believe the ball is in your court. And just leaves it there. Like, she has been rooting clearly for Artie this whole time. But she's in that awkward position of having to answer to a lot of people. So I thought that was great. And then from there, we go back to the warehouse and we're in the dark vault and Micah is struggling to save Pete. She tries to get him to take her belt so she can pull him out and he just doesn't have the motivation to do that. And so she goes, come on, warehouse, give me something. And then she's like, oh, yes. And whether or not the warehouse implanted that idea in her or she just remembered, um... She comes back with, like, a big push broom 
and <laughs> pushes Pete out of the circle with the broom, and Pete falls and is face to face with the bloodstone. It goes, ah, you again. Yes, and I want to pause here just because there was there was a line where. Micah is trying to, like, motivate Pete. If you won't take the belt, like, Pete, Pete, it's a race. Remember the tortoise and the hare kind of calling back? And usually Pete, you know, we saw him with the dodgeball earlier. He would be a little competitive. He would be, you know, that kind of guy about things. And he says, win, lose, what's the diff? And it's so sad. Um, And I want to pause on it for a minute here because... We know that Pete is so energetic and competitive that that line, even though it's in his sort of idiolect, like, what's the diff? Like, it's cute, but it's really dangerous because we know that the typewriter sucks the life out of you. And then we have to stop and think more about what we said earlier, where um, they do something cool where they're like, here's this newly discovered Plath poem from 2006. Um, that's what this is causing people to feel. But Micah still immediately brought up that Sylvia Plath took her own life and that that is what, sh- what the fear would be about why this artifact is so dangerous because it could suck the life out of you and lead you to those ideations that are so, so scary and dangerous. So... I have a clip from my friend Anna here. What I mean by the myth of female suicide is that we tend to remember women writers for the salaciousness or the tragedy of their personal lives um, as kind of tragic celebrities rather than as professionals, intellectuals, authors in the way that we remember men. Um, And I think Plath is a really great example of the way that we talk about certain kinds of women writers, especially around tragedy, around death and suicide. Uh, Virginia Woolf, who I work on, is another major example, as is Anne Sexton, who was another confessional poet who Plath was friends with. Um, And, you know, it's kind of complicated to resolve that because Plath did have a very sad life. Um, and we, you know, want to honor, like, the things that she went through, certainly. You know, her husband was the famous poet um, and British poet laureate Ted Hughes. He treated her very badly. She did obviously suffer from mental illness and die by suicide. But all those things are true. Um, but I think those parts of her life have become her legacy to the detriment of all else. So we tend to lose sight of what an incredible mind she had, how prolific she was, how much she wrote, how um, sort of innovative and new and exciting her poetry was. Also, I think just to be a woman who went to college in the 1950s was kind of amazing in its own right. Uh, she went to Smith and like had a lot of friendships with a lot of other really smart women during that time. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's important to remember that we tend to fetishize biography when it comes to women and make it this sort of totalizing narrative in the way that we don't for men. So, for instance, there are no jokes on Gilmore Girls about Ernest Hemingway, as far as I remember. We tend to remember him for his novels. Um, but there are at least two jokes about Louis Plath's death on this TV show. So she's become sort of more of a pop culture reference than, a, than an author or a scholar in her own right. Um, and I, I think that sort of comes, by the, comes from the sense that women writers are our property, that we should get to know about their lives, that, that their sex lives, their deaths are our business, rather than thinking thinking about them as um, intellectuals and artists whose work we appreciate on its own merits. And so Micah really needs to save Pete from this. And I'm 
I'm glad that it's complicated in the episode, but I also think that the episode really can't mention Plath without mentioning the suicide, which is tough, you know? And the Mental Health Awareness Month is really hitting us hard here of like, people need help and it's serious and depression does have this effect, which Claudia had been mentioning the bell jar. So the, the narrator and the main character in the bell jar uses the image of a bell jar, which is like one of those tall glass, you know, sort of like lids, cloches that goes over like a scientific um, specimen or something like that. We don't see them that much anymore. But she uses that image of a sort of glass lid being placed over her as a metaphor for depression so that it's... Um, stale and fusty and there's no fresh air and um, sound is sort of muted and she feels really separated from other people. Um, And so there's a lot of talk, especially around the end of that novel, about um, it has a kind of hopeful ending and she feels like the belter has been lifted and she can breathe fresh air again, um, but anxiety about it maybe someday descending again on her. And so I think it's a kind of metaphor for the way that um, people living with mental illness um, can come in and out of it, but it is kind of a constant presence in your life no matter where it is. And I think, you know, that novel has a sort of hopeful end that is tempered by what we know about Plath's life. Um, But yeah. It's how depression feels um, when you have it. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's a great relief that Micah is just able to shove Pete out of the circle. But what we see in a few minutes here is that Pete is out of the frying pan, but his energy is still drained. Yeah. And when Mike, Micah and him are trying to run away, he actually can't. And I think that's really important, too, is that even um, even after escaping from the immediate uh, danger of that depression and that sucking of life out of him, he still needs time to recover, which, you know, we, we all do. So that, that was... I had stuff I wanted to say about that too that I felt was really important especially in the spirit of mental health month and you touched on all the things that were important about Plath's poetry and what Micah did but I want to talk a bit about Eddie as an actor and the fact that this is mental health month in our interview he was very open about the fact that he's also struggled with anxiety and depression and we've been very open on this show about how those issues are important to us. And I've struggled a bit with anxiety and depression in my past. And I think what the poem on We catches, what Eddie is able to draw on personal experience to portray really well, is that people think depression just means you're sad, which isn't always the case. That slow draining of feeling that things don't matter anymore is probably for a lot of people the scariest part and I think that even though Pete says what the diff and maintains his idiolect the reason it comes off is because Eddie does what he always does when it gets to be a serious acting moment he plays it really honestly and goes to those places which is scary and it's hard to be vulnerable and it's hard to talk about but I think it is a sign of real big strength for him for talking about it at all and for bringing that to the character because it's not like he stood there and cried and like shook and pretended he was really sad. When Micah says that the artifact is draining the life out of him, 
it's the most visible in Pete because he's so jokey and lively and the things that make him feel and seem alive to us are his outward actions and the way he interacts with others and we see him slowly not caring about how his actions affect others and then not caring about how his actions affect himself that's not just scary because it's happening it's scary because it's the antithesis of what Pete is and I think that also really illustrates that depression is something that you deal with maybe something Mm -hmm. that you have but not something that you are it's a separate entity from Pete and I think that is something that Eddie captures really, really well. I think that's so important and something Jillian and I as best friends talk about our mental health and something she said is that anxiety or depression in this case is something that happens to you. And that is exactly what Plath describes with the bell jar and it's exactly what I think in the spirit of mental health week we should talk about further with Eddie McClintock, if we, you know, we know that he has been open about dealing with anxiety and depression, um, and that his character is basically who he is, oftentimes you or someone you know can continue to be that Pete-like person on the outside. Like, be jokey, be happy, be optimistic, be funny. Like, you can have depression and not act sad or not look sad to people outside of yourself. And so a lot of times people feel like, well, that's not me. I would never be depressed. But when you know what depression really is and how it's something that happens chemically in your brain that isn't indicative of your personality or anything being wrong with you, it's just, you know, your body science, then, you know, it starts to make sense that if a person like Eddie McClintock has talked about dealing with that ennui as a like loss of loss of desire to just do the things you love, that can be depression and you're not maybe you're not crying every day. Maybe you are. Everybody's different. But I think it's so small but so well depicted in this episode. And seriously, if you are at home and you have dealt with that feeling of nothing matters, I don't want to get out of bed because, uh, you know, nothing motivates me today. You could say, oh, but I'm not depressed. I'm just tired. I would never, you know, I would never be so sad. That that doesn't have to be true. It's not your fault. And it it doesn't have to be like an overwhelming weeping um, that we would stereotype depression as. It's much more complicated. So, And it can also be really hard to ask for help when you feel like nothing matters because if nothing matters then asking for help doesn't matter and if we can do anything for you from afar with this podcast we will be the voice in your head that tells you that it matters and that it's absolutely worth investing that time in yourself to try and get better yes so i think we can go out of that dark vault now to Claudia's scene. So in Claudia's scene, she is in the gooey and <laughs> things are both more and less serious. On a, on a <laughs> real world level, it's less serious as an allegory because we're out of the dark vault and therefore out of talking about the heavy emotions and heavy themes that we just discussed. <laughs> but more serious is the fact that 
the countdown is getting worse and Claudia gets stuck to the sticky string, aka not silly string TM. <laughs> <laughs> and the gears start moving, but in the wrong direction, <laughs> pulling Claudia towards the gears. Everything is going haywire. This is not good. And then we go out on a box. Yes, and just a quick note about the string. She is initially using her purple gloves. And so the first few pieces she grabs don't stick to her. And it's when, and I've done this because I wear gloves in the garden or whatever. You're like, well, but I lose so much dexterity with my gloves on. So you take them off. And then immediately the sticky string is not surprisingly sticky. And then also she says that that it smells like chicken, (laughs) which is hilarious to me as a person who knows like silly string smells so bad um it smells to me just like chemicals but i wish it smelled like fudge so just a funny random note that she says that also just like a good motif of food smelling artifacts in the warehouse sure and um claudia needs help But that's where we get the commercial. So we'll come back to that in a second. And then when we come back for commercial, we're back in the gooey with Claudia and Micah. And we talked before about how hard it can be to motivate to ask for help and then to feel safe asking for help from someone. I love, I've talked about this before with Claudia. Claudia is so emotionally open and needs help and immediately asks for it she doesn't do i mean i get it's a dire situation so she doesn't really have time but still i think a lot of people even micah would say something like oh my god this is happening i can't do it and put that on themselves even before asking for help and claudia's just like i need help please help me and that's great that's how we should all be ask for help when you need it yeah oh my gosh i love it and right as Micah goes running for the silly string, Claudia's like, no, 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 don't touch it. So Micah grabs her waist and pulls on it. And again, if you want, this is not supposed to be a metaphor, but I'll make it one. If you want a good mental health metaphor, like your people, your support system, whoever they are for you personally, they will be the Micah holding you by the waist and pulling with you. Um, and Claudia has a really funny line where she's like, hours of fun for the whole family they lied it's not even minutes of fun (laughs) so back to our great metaphor they they realize they need more help and claudia goes mind if i yell which is awesome because she's really close you know micah's close in her ears like no no problem and she yells for pete they're like pete and he runs over and yells chicks (laughs) it's so cute i love it he's like he's not all better yet but he's becoming more and more himself which is wonderful and he's been summoned by his found family that needs him and uh so this is interesting because you could think well they need pete because he's big and muscly no they're like quick you have to cut the tie because we're stuck or claudia is stuck to this silly string sticky string Pete kind of freezes, realizing, like, uh, what am I going to grab? And that's when this is so cool, and I just want a thousand kudos for whichever writer came up with this. Claudia is like, get the snow globe from my bag, get the snow globe. And, you know, I went to college. (laughs) This is your liquid nitrogen science experiment. 
And Pete, even in the rush of the moment, there's noises, the gears, he's rushing, he's shuffling through the bag. He goes, hey, 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 <laughs> pulls out the snow globe and brings a hammer. They shake the snow globe over the sticky string, which um, if you haven't done this liquid nitrogen thing, it basically just freezes stuff instantly. So your science teacher might freeze like a rose is what mine did, mm-hmm. a flower, something that is soft and not not breakable. It freezes instantly and then shatters like glass because it's so cold. So that's what he does. He makes the sticky string really, really cold and then smashes it with the hammer, which shatters it and then kind of gets the gears back in flux. And the weirdest word choice to me personally, Mrs. Frederick's little loudspeaker goes, the emergency has been abated. Nice work. And I'm like, abated? Like, is that a word people use? I mean, I know what it means, but I know what it means because of an English major, not because of, like, using it. Jillian's like, I use that word every day. <laughs> so what I love is Claudia instantly hugs Pete. And Pete thanks the recording. <laughs> but also, before he saves the day, he's like, this is so weird. Why does she, she's even annoying in a recording. Why does she like this? And they're like, Pete, focus. But I like how his instinct is to always just make fun of Mrs. Frederick just a little bit. So the hug I think is important because Claudia, you can tell in that last urgent few minutes was really scared for her life and felt really threatened. And then Pete was the one who saved her at the last second And that's why she rushes to him in the sort of brotherly or fatherly, like, family way. Like, you needed that person to rescue you. And she's so relieved and overwhelmed by the severity of how close they came to disaster. So, Because also, again, in the same way that she's never had someone in her life like Micah before, Claudia didn't know if she could trust Pete and Micah. Because it's only ever been Artie who saved her. Oh, Jillian, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> and it's not that she doesn't trust them on like an interpersonal level, but Artie's dad, you know, he's the one who's there. And Pete and Micah were there, like they arrived and gave information to Artie, but it was still ultimately Artie who got her and Joshua out, who saved the day. It was Artie who got her down when she had Volta's lab coat. And she knows... I'm sure intellectually that they're great at their jobs and they go out in the world every week and do this. But that doesn't mean that she thinks that she is, I think, in some ways worthy of being saved. I think she thinks that the system is built to fail her a lot of times. And so I think it was really reassuring for her to have that experience with Pete and Micah and it brought them so much closer and that brings so much more meaning to that hug that she gives Pete because now in addition to just being people who she really cares about and is happy to spend her life around those people are her family yeah she has three people not just who would risk their lives for her but who would do it for the person she is now not for the person who she used to be or who they used to know her as and that's pretty special such a good episode I love Claudia meanwhile outside of the restaurant Mrs. Frederick compliments Artie's performance, and he's like, am I fired? And she's like, worse. And we're like, oh, (laughs) they want you to stay, Artie. You're stuck with us for longer. 
And Mrs. Frederick is like, well, you know, Baring and Latimer aren't the best agents we've ever had. You are. And he's like, they said that? It was said. (laughs) It was said. Oh, yes. See, this is, okay, I'm an English teacher. You're not supposed to use the passive voice. But this is why you learn the rules to break the rules. Because this passive voice, she is distancing herself from the agency of that statement on purpose, which only emphasizes it to us more, like, so well that that means, like, well, I said it, but I don't want to tell you it was me. And she's like, simply the facts, which is a reprise from earlier. And then super under her breath, she goes... And they were smart enough to believe me. (laughs) Ah, yes! CCH Pounder kills it in this episode. I love that so much. Every small exchange she has deepens the world, is the best way I can describe it. So then she tells Artie, happy hunting, try not to get yourself killed. Yeah, I think she says good hunting, which I believe is like a fighter pilot phrase. Ah, yes, you're probably Um, right. It certainly is in Battlestar Galactica, and I believe they draw that from um, the Air Force. That's amazing. And I just love that the whole scene, I was just like, Frederick's got jokes! It was so great. She's very relieved. I think that she, to some degree, isn't allowed to yell at the regents in the way that Artie does. But I think yelling needed to have happened, and she was quite pleased that he did it. Um, Yes. So now we go back to the Warehouse 13 office where... (laughs) The vacuum is working fine. And Claudia says, oh, don't try to get friendly with me now. (laughs) Yes. And you know what's funny is like in this moment where she's talking to the vacuum, it reminds me of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 robots and how they're like clearly made of like pieces of things you have around the house like this sort of steampunk auto vacuum is like made of vaguely recognizable old vacuum parts and she's talking to it in this anthropomorphic way and it's all very cute and all the vacuums fault yes and then i have things i want to say because in i believe it was 103 magnetism where Pete and Micah were fighting, and Micah was just very overwhelmed by all the testosterone in her life, and there was just a lot happening. Um, We first introduced the concept of the Bechdel test in this podcast, and oh boy, this show did not pass it by design, because there just were too few women around in Micah's life, and she was feeling very frustrated. And so, if you recall... The Bechdel test is two women appearing in a scene, both characters must have names, and they must be talking about something other than a man. And this scene passes that with flying colors, and we instantly see the dynamic that Micah was missing. We've seen what Pete gets out of this dynamic in this episode. We've seen what Artie and what Mrs. Frederick and what Claudia all get out of this dynamic in this episode. And now we're finally seeing what Micah got out of this new dynamic with Claudia, which is something she's really been missing, which is just the chance to talk to another woman and relate to another woman. And that's amazing. And Claudia comes up to her and says, thanks for trusting me. And Micah just very earnestly says, I know what it's like to be your age and have nobody believe in you. Mm. Claudia just sort of nods and acknowledges that. And 
neither of them are trying to prove themselves to anybody. They're just having this very frank, open and honest discussion. And then Micah tells Claudia that she's really good and she's going to be fine because she's really good at what she does. And without saying it, she says, look, you belong here. You're excellent. We're really glad to have you. She doesn't say those words, but she doesn't need to because it's all in there. And then Claudia asks Micah (laughs) to help her learn how to do the kind of kick that she did. And Claudia reveals it's because she tried to do it on her own, but she thinks she broke her toe and she definitely broke the light switch she practiced on, which is so sweet. And then Micah says, yeah, absolutely. And then can you teach me how to do the thing? And Claudia goes, you want me to teach you to hack the grid? Okay. And she definitely, like, you know, Micah's a good learner. She is thrilled to learn anything. And she's going to learn this. And we do actually, much later, get confirmation that Claudia has taught Micah things. And now Micah knows some things about hacking, which I love. Yes. And I just want to point out that this is the third beat where Claudia is like, Micah, will you teach me that? And then she goes, <laughs> that that thing that you did. And that's where we get that sound effect, that cartoony sort of karate chop again, which just brings a little humor to the moment. Allison's way of playing off is, you want to hack the grid? Like, is so perfect for Claudia's character. And the fact that she's excited, because we all know, whether it's you or someone in your life who is really nerdy about a thing that other people find boring, like, it's so exciting when you encounter someone who is into that thing or who is willing to listen to you about that thing. So Pete comes in, and we can still see he's not at full strength. He's still a little shaken from the typewriter, but he's putting on a smile. He's starting to feel like himself. He just sort of checks around, and Claudia's like, I bet Artie won't even notice. And just then, Claudia has had, she called it karma, but just like the worst ironic timing um, in this episode. That's when Artie walks in and is like, notice what? And this fast thinking is so funny. (laughs) Like, his surprise party! Surprise! (laughs) And they all go in on it, but there's obviously no party. Like, it's just the three of them standing (laughs) where they always are. Um... And then he's just like, okay, what'd you do? (laughs) Like, what happened? And they all come clean at once. Pete's just like, it was crazy. These things occurred. What? (laughs) And Micah just keeps going, but we fixed it. It's all fixed. It's fine now. And we fixed it. And Artie has the great line that's like, how how far away from, like, total destruction (laughs) were you or whatever? Um, And they're like, "Eh, less than a minute, more like 30 seconds. And then he is like, yeah, I got there once, but with 17 seconds. And then they're all kind of like, what? Oh my gosh. Like, uh, and he's like, yeah, isn't it annoying? And Mrs. Frederick starts to <laughs> count down one second at a time. Like he has had the exact same experience as them. And of course we knew he was a warehouse agent. And then Mrs. Frederick's like, you were one of our best agents. Uh, that line again, reinforced it for us. But we keep getting reminders that Artie, when he was younger, really was a Pete and Micah character who did these really dangerous things all the time. Like, I think in another episode, he could be like, oh my, oh my gosh, it almost blew up. But it seems to me like the fact that 
he had just vouched for them and how good they are at solving problems. And they just proved his point because when he returns home, a huge crisis. I mean, the episode is called Breakdown. The The warehouse breaks down <laughs> and almost explodes and they totally fixed it. So he's like, in this particular moment, he's like, yeah, you fixed it. You did what I knew you would do, which is awesome. Agreed. And Peek goes, all right, let's go. Who wants Mexican? And Claudia's like, me, I want tacos. And then they ask Micah, are you coming? And Micah says yes, even though she doesn't usually join for the food-based outings. And goes, poor Kano, she's feeling all feisty. And then Micah invites Artie, and he has one of my favorite lines, which is, no, I had pie. Well, I almost had pie. Actually, bring me back one taco. (laughs) Well, this is the funny thing, and you, um... You translated it because we know what it means, but he says tu vaya. He's, Pete says it in Spanish. He does? Yeah. <laughs> in my brain, I just heard it in English. Okay. But yeah, they have this sense of humor. Um, also, we'll see them speak Spanish in a later episode that I won't spoil, but mm-hmm. Pete knows a little Spanish. And they go out for Mexican, and that's the end. Yep. And it goes out with Artie looking on his computer after they've gone and just goes, rest up, you'll need it. And he looks at a picture of McPherson on his computer. His nemesis. Does it done? Come back next week. Oh my gosh. So that was a great episode and just a killer recording. We nailed that. We totally did. But first, (laughs) you can leave that in. But I should say, thanks for listening, agents. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. And really quick before you go, don't forget to support us on Patreon or just tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe. We are in pre-production for season two and we can't do this without you. Thanks so much.